Thank you, Seth, very much. We're going to be in Mark 13 today. We're going to continue on through this chapter called the Olivet Discourse. We're going to find ourselves in verses 24 through 37. Let me read them to you. This is Jesus speaking. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree then, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Well, I titled the message this morning something that should get your attention. I titled it, Did Jesus Already Come? Well, now that I have your attention, we're going to keep talking about this. The sermon outline. Where we're going in this text is this. What we're going to see in verses 24 through 27 is the prediction of Jesus' coming. 28 through 31, we're going to talk about the nearness of his coming. And then 32 through 36 deal with our duty until his coming. Well now, you all might recall, as I already made mention to, this section of scripture is called the Olivet Discourse. Why is it called that? Well, it was the discourse that Jesus gave to his followers on the Mount of Olives. And so it's been famously titled the Olivet Discourse. It is not an easy section of scripture to handle. And I've tried with much study and, of course, with a lot of humility as well to try to handle it rightly and to try to let it speak for itself. We're going to continue on with it because, as you know, we are committed to expository preaching here, preaching chapter by chapter, section by section, going all the way through a book to see everything that the Lord has for us, everything that he has to say to us is important. And so we look at every word. God has a lot to say to us. The Bible's a big book, isn't it? So, continuing on then with this Olivet Discourse, we're going to actually finish it up today, and we saved the best for last. <laughs> Jesus says, but in those days after that tribulation. Okay, what days and what tribulation? Let's not forget the context. The context of verse 2 of this chapter. Look back in your Bible at verse 2 now. Remember, 
Jesus says to them, do you see these great buildings? There's not one stone, I mean, I'm sorry, there will not be left here, one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. They were admiring the temple. They're admiring the buildings of uh, the temple court, even. And Jesus says, look around. They're all, all of them, going to be torn down. Which would have sent a shockwave and a chill through his followers, the twelve this was something akin to basically saying, it's not even a, a close comparison, but if we were walking around D.C. admiring all the monuments, and I said, look around, they're all going to be blown up one day. The reason why I say it's not quite the equivalent is because this was a place of worship. This was the dwelling place of the house of God for the Jews. But as Americans, that's about as close as I can get you to understanding what this would have sort of meant. So then in verse 4, of course, they have the question, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? And that's where we get the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter, all of this, is an answer to their question. So what kind of tribulation are we talking about? Well, remember from the sermon two Sundays ago, because last week was about William Tyndale, he says to them, when you see the abomination of desolation standing there where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee. We talked about the abomination of desolation being the Romans coming into the temple, doing that abominable thing of tearing the temple apart, carrying off the holy things. We know they carried off the holy things because there's still a monument in Rome called the Arch of Titus where is inscribed on the side a picture of the Romans carrying off the menorah, the big, huge candle stand. And then, what other uh, tribulation are we talking about here? Verse 19 of our chapter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation until God created it. So it's clear that Jesus was just referring back to what he just talked about because this is just one long discourse. He's not jumping thousands of years into the future now. He's talking about these things are going to happen. You're going to see this happen. Armies are going to come. There's going to be persecutions that are going to fall on you guys. We've already seen in the text that everything that he said is going to happen to them did happen to them. We see in the book of Acts all these things fulfilled. We know the temple is going to be destroyed. We know it was destroyed in, in AD 70. And then in the very next breath... He says, but in those days after that tribulation, verse 24, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. What is he talking about? What's he talking about? After those tribulations, after those things have happened to the temple and the destruction, he's saying now, the sun's going to be darkened. The moon's not going to give its light. Stars are going to fall from heaven. Really? Because I don't remember anyone recording that in AD 70. I don't remember anyone saying, meteorites fell from the sky. The stars just pummeled everything. What does he mean then? What's he talking about? Listen to Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13, verse 10. Isaiah 13, verse 10. Why do I bring us to this? Because we've, we've got similar language like this used in other parts of Scripture. 
Isaiah 13.10, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Sound familiar? Jesus used similar language just like that. What is the context here in Isaiah? The context in Isaiah 13 is judgment that's going to fall upon Babylon. We find similar language like this yet again used in Joel 2.10. Look at Joel 2.10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. This verse is uh, speak about when God brought judgment for the southern kingdom. You might remember Israel was divided into two different kingdoms because of Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son, and the northern kingdom was a lot more wicked than the southern kingdom, which it wasn't great either, though. Well, this was judgment that was going to come upon the southern kingdom, and Joel was prophesying about that. You might recall that this judgment, his specific judgment that he's talking about here, came in the form of locusts. So, the verse from Isaiah is part of a prophecy concerning judgment that would fall on Babylon. Joel's reference is a prophecy of the judgment that's going to fall on the southern kingdom. And he uses the same language that Jesus uses when talking about judgment to fall upon Jerusalem. Jesus, who is the, the prophet, capital T for the and, and capital P for prophet, he is the prophet of all prophets that there ever were. And he employs the same language as the prophets of old that he inspired to write what they wrote. It was the Spirit of Christ inspiring them to write these things that they wrote. And just like the old prophets used this language when telling about how tremendous and awful the judgments would be when they were to come, so we find Jesus doing the same thing. Jesus using prophetic judgment language to further paint the picture of just how monumental and horrible this judgment would be. Something akin to elements themselves changing and falling. He's trying to paint a word picture here of just how horrendous this is going to be when it happens. So then, look at verses 26, because then with the next breath out of his mouth, he says this, and then... They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, what things taking place? The stuff that he just mentioned throughout the chapter. You know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, <laughs> this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I would put this section of Scripture in the top ten of hardest portions of Scripture to understand. So you need to understand that me coming into this chapter was with intrepidation, was with knowing that this is not an easy section of Scripture to deal with. And with God's help, 
I'm going to do my best in trying to explain it to you as I compare Scripture with Scripture, as I let other portions of Scripture inform my understanding of the harder portions of Scripture. That's what we do. Remember, that's what I've been trying to teach you guys for a long, long time. We let the easier portions of Scripture to understand help us with the harder portions to understand. It's like things that we have nailed down. We know they're solid and they're true and they're unshakable. We, we say, yes, nobody debates these things. We bring those over to the harder portions and we look through those lenses at the harder portions. And that's how we don't get ourselves in trouble. That's how we also don't come up with all kinds of heresies. And so here we are in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus has included so far not just the destruction of the temple, not just the destruction of Jerusalem, and not just the persecution of his followers, and not just the fact that false Christs would come, etc., etc., but now also his own coming in the clouds with power and glory and all happening before this generation passes away, he says. Okay, we see a problem there, don't we? We see a problem there. He's saying to them, this generation, you all, that he's talking to, is not going to pass away until all these things take place. All right. So how do we handle that? Well, there are several, there are several options, and all these options have been taken at some time in history by different people. There's the option that some of Christianity's critics have given and that's this. Jesus was mistaken. He was wrong. I told you guys already about Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell, that's his view, is he reads Matthew 24, he reads Mark 13, he reads Luke 21. By the way, all three of those sections cover the Olivet Discourse. He reads all of them, and he says, well, it's pretty clear he's talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and then right after that, he mentions his coming, and he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And he reads that, and he says, well, he was wrong, because he didn't come back then. Therefore, he gives no weight to the words of Jesus Christ anymore after that. Therefore, he takes the path of atheism. Therefore, he doubts Scripture. And that's true. Bertrand Russell, as far as we know, died an atheist. Extremely intelligent, but extremely unsaved. Second option is this. We can do this with this text. You could spiritualize the term generation. You could spiritualize it to mean something other than what the literal term would have meant in that day. That word in that day meant roughly a span of about 40 years. When they used generation, that's, that's what they meant, about, about 40 years of time. So you could spiritualize that word and it could mean something more broad, something more um, indefinite. It could mean, gosh, whatever you want it to mean, to make sense of what Jesus just said there. Maybe he means just Christianity. Christianity's not going to pass away until all these things take place. He's always going to have a, like a remnant on earth, like we talked about in Sunday school this morning. Maybe that's what it means. That's a view that some people have taken. Again, we all have to wrestle with this text. None of us get to just say, yeah, that's, that's hard, honey. Bring me the scissors, please. Let me just cut that out. 
And I'm also going to cut out the part about paying taxes, too. I don't like that one either. And we'll just, uh, now, this is the Bible I prefer. We don't get to do that. We all have the same problem when we come to the Olivet Discourse. All of us have to try to make sense of it. Third option is this. To try to better understand what Jesus may have meant by his coming. Was he talking about the ultimate coming on the last day? Or might he have meant something else? I believe that the best handling of the text when comparing Scripture with Scripture, when we, when we use the easier passages to help us understand the harder passages, I believe that will cause us to land more on option number three. We have to. I, I just don't think we can read this text with integrity. I don't think we can read this text unless we twist it and try to make it say something else. I don't think we can read this text unless we're trying to force some other prepackaged end times view on it. I don't think we can read it at face value and see it saying anything else but something about, something about the second coming of Jesus Christ happened in AD 70. Was it the second coming of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. I'm not teaching that at all. The Bible is very clear on the fact that when Jesus comes on the last day, it will be bodily and visibly, the dead will be raised, the final judgment will happen, those who have not had their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ will be cast into the lake of fire, those who have had their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ will be a part of Jesus in the kingdom, in the new heavens and new earth. That day is coming, and that was not AD 70. I just want to be very clear. I'm not, not saying that, that Jesus came back in AD 70. I have to say this, though, if I'm going to rightly handle this text with integrity and have a clear conscience and lay my head down on the pillow at the end of the night with a clear conscience. I have to say this. Something, something about the coming of Jesus Christ happened in that generation in AD 70. I have to say that. Now... I was encouraged because I've, I've tried to make sense as best I could with the end times really ever since I've been a Christian. I've been slow in jumping in one camp or another because I wanted to read it well for myself and not just take a prepackaged end times view that somebody else said, listen, I've studied this way much more than you have. You just need to, you just need to trust me on this. This is how it is. And me say, okay, well, that means I don't have to do my homework. I'll take your view. Sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we can't, okay? I get it. Not all of us are going to just pour hours and hours and hours into the scriptures and try to get things. I think you should, but I just know humans well enough to know you're not all going to do that. <laughs> You're going to find a faithful pastor, Bible teacher with integrity, with, who's godly, that you know and love. And you're going to say, well, well, he said it means this, so that's what I think it means. I get it. We do that. 
But didn't Paul even say that the Bereans were counted more noble because they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was right? More noble. So I was relieved to know that um, as I wrestled with this and just let the scripture speak for itself and didn't try to force some exterior view upon it um, about the second coming of Jesus Christ, I was glad to know that I wasn't just a weirdo or some kook when I found that John Owen held the same view as well. You guys know, have you heard of John Owen? Um, He wrote Mortification of Sin. You probably know him for this. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That quote, he coined that. He's a Puritan from the 1600s. In one of his sermons, he said this about this same topic. Because in every such providential alteration or or disillusion of things on the account of Christ and his church, there is a peculiar coming of Christ himself. He cometh into the world for the work he hath to do. He, you know what? Instead of cometh, I'm just going to translate it for you guys for like comes. I'm just going to, the King James here is, he's, he's from the 1600s. I'm going to translate it for you while I read it. He comes among his own to fulfill his pleasure among them. Hence, such works are called his coming and the coming of his day. Thus, James exhorts these very Jews to whom Peter here writes, his is a sermon on Peter, uh, with reference to such things. James 5, 7 through 9. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. But how could that generation extend their patience to the day of judgment? No. He says this. That is not the work I design, but is coming to take vengeance on his stubborn adversaries, which with he says in verse 8, draws near, is even at hand. Yes, Christ, the judge, stands at the very door, in verse 9, ready to enter, which he also, which also he did within a few years. He's talking about how that 8070 happened within a few years of the writing of the book of James. So upon or in the destruction of Jerusalem, the same work, the Son of Man is said to come in a cloud with power and great glory. That's our text. And they that escape are said to stand before the Son of Man. So in the ruin and destruction of the Roman Empire, on the account of that persecution, it is said that the day of the wrath of the Lamb was come. In all such dispensations, then, listen to this, there is a peculiar coming of Christ, a peculiar drawing near of him to deal with all sorts of persons in a special manner. Though he be oftentimes encompassed with many clouds and with much darkness, yet he is present, exerting his authority, power, wisdom, righteousness, and grace in an imminent manner. What's he saying? You guys are saying, okay, that was a lot. And I got a little sleepy, even, Cohen. What, what's he saying? He's saying, when Christ does large and even peculiar things among his people, what he's saying is, that is like a coming of Christ. He goes on to say that in his sermon as well. He goes on to say, when God does big, magnificent works among his people, that is like a coming of Christ. Does he believe it's the coming? No. Again, listen to me, guys. This is people trying their best with this text. 
It is a hard text. It's not an easy text. Of course, we'd have this text on mornings when we have visitors here. And so and other times, you know, it's like you can stand on something really sure. And this you're like, I'm, I'm trying hard. But John Owen saw something that I saw as well, which really encouraged me. Because John Owen's way up there and I'm way down there. And so he sees something as I do, even about what he says there on the Olivet Discourse. There's this peculiar coming of Christ at that time. But he mentioned James 5, 7, and 9. Did you hear him mention that? Let's look at that, because that is also significant. That's also one of these portions of Scripture that we say, well, that would make sense of this text then, because have you wrestled with this text? I'm trying to show you things in the Scripture that I don't think you've wrestled with. I'm trying to show you that every word in the Bible not only is inspired, but it is inspired for your building up and should be taken seriously. It should be handled and thought about because it's all very important. Look what James said. Look what James said to the early church. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, be patient about, uh, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Why, James? Tell us. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, excuse me, the judge is standing at the door. I've got a question for you. How could they even obey this command about being patient until the Lord's coming unless some aspect of the Lord's coming happened in their lifetime? This is an inspired scripture, is it not? The Holy Spirit inspired James to write this, correct? And it means something, doesn't it? So how could they even obey this command to be patient until the coming of the Lord? Unless they could be patient until the coming of the Lord. Am I saying that James perfectly understood everything that the coming of the Lord meant? He probably didn't. But we see here he's fully convinced that it's about to happen and that the judge is standing at the door. That makes a bit more sense, too. When we put that with our text in Matthew 13, I mean Mark 13, rather, makes a bit more sense. We say, okay, okay, Jesus said this generation is going to see it. This generation is going to experience his coming. James believed it as well. You know, it's interesting, my three favorite preachers, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, who's in heaven now, and John Piper, my three favorites. You know what? All three of them have a different end times view. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? We all try hard to make sense of this subject in the Bible. It is not easy. You might be saying, Cohen, you are a kook. You said you're a kook. You admitted it. I believe you are. I believe you're wrong. Hey, that's fine. I know that I still have a lot to learn, and I'm willing to sit down with any of you and go through these texts and try to make sense of it with you. I admit I have a long way to go. And if I am wrong, I want to be corrected. 
definitely. But I will also try to convince you of what I'm saying here because I've thought about it for a long time. Well, let's keep going. Verse 32 says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the Son, but only the Father. As if we needed another text to try to make sense of, here's another one. (laughs) Okay. Jesus says he doesn't know when it's going to (laughs) happen. The exact day, he doesn't know when it's going to happen. The exact hour, he doesn't know when it's going to happen. But Cohen, I thought Jesus was equal with God. How can he not know something? You're now telling me he's not omniscient? I can't improve upon R.C. Sproul's commentary on this verse, so let me read it to you. Jesus was conscious of his unique relationship to the Father as the eternal Son. Yet there was a limitation to his knowledge during his life on earth. What the Father had not revealed to him about the future, he did not know. In that sense, the man Jesus, the Son with regard to his human nature was not omniscient. Let's talk about that. When Jesus became incarnate, kiddos, that means when he put on flesh. He purposefully, purposefully limited himself in many ways in order to fulfill the Father's perfect will for him. He had to become like us in so many ways in order to, number one, be that merciful and understanding high priest that we need. What do I mean? When Jesus put on flesh, the Bible says he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. That makes him a merciful mediator between God and man. Why? Because he knows what it's like to be human. He knows about your limitations. He knows about your temptations. Why? How? Because he's been there. He subjected himself to a human life. He became man. He didn't stop becoming God. Number two reason why we need him to become like us, he had to become like us in order to die in our place. He had to take the punishment for sin as the second Adam because of the transgression caused by the first Adam. He can't shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins if he doesn't have real blood, right? All right, I'm almost done, guys. Two pages left. Hang with me. This is, we got to get this together. We're going to get it together, okay? We're all, I'm here for you. Are you here for me? All right, good. We're, we're trying to make sense of this together. So the taking on of flesh meant that he had to take a huge step down, didn't he? From the throne of glory, surrounded by angels, to a manger and with hay surrounded by animals and regular humans. This is why Jesus' knowledge on that day was limited, because he chose to limit himself in order to perfectly fulfill the Father's will. He purposefully chose to limit himself, and it had to be that way. So, now into our final portion of the outline our duty until he comes. Our duty until he comes. We've already talked about the prediction of his coming, the nearness of his coming. This is where our part comes in. Because we have a part 
Be on your guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. Verse 34. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say, I say, wall, stay awake. I especially want to focus on verse 34. Look at verse 34 with me, please. Jesus uses a simile. Remember from English class? A simile is a comparison using like or as, remember? So he uses a simile here that he turns into like a mini parable. Notice he says, it is like a man going on a journey. What's the it? Well, everything he just talked about. Because all this happens, remember, All that he said was going to happen in AD 70 happens after he's taken back up into heaven, right? Remember, in just a few days from our text, he's in the middle of Holy Week here, in just a few days from our text, he's going to be crucified and then raised again to life. And then 40 days after that, he ascends back up to heaven. So 40 days after his resurrection, he will ascend to heaven once again, be seated with the Father at the Father's right hand. And the rest of the verse says... That when this man in this parable leaves his home, he puts his father, I mean, he puts his servants in charge, each to his work. So, so this mini parable is about Jesus going away. He says, it's like a man going on a journey. Jesus goes away. When he leaves home, he puts servants in charge, each with his own work. Now that Jesus is in heaven, he's given to us the ministry of making disciples, sharing the truth. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You and I now have the ministry of reconciliation. What does he mean? Okay, let's keep going. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There's a message we have. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What's our appeal? We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We have that ministry now. Until Jesus comes back, you and I are to focus on the work that he's given to us. What's the work he's given to us? This, the the message in the ministry of reconciliation. But wait a second. Reconciliation means like there's two parties and they're, and they're split and they need to be reconciled together. What's he talking about? He's talking about sinful man and holy God. That's the reconciliation that needs to happen. You are born separated from God. You're born as a descendant of Adam with the sin nature of Adam. You can't save yourself. Salvation happens only through Jesus Christ. Your sin is so sinful, it separates you from God forever. The only way for it to be 
forgiven is if someone takes the punishment for that sin, and that's exactly what Jesus did. How did he do it? Great question. Verse 21 tells us. Verse 21 of our text right there. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. What's he talking about? God made Christ who knew no sin. He was sinless to be sin for us. The curse of our sin, he put onto Christ and then punished Christ as if he were a sinner. And then here's the second part. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So God made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm over here sinful. Christ is over here holy. I can't be reconciled to God on my own. God puts my punishment onto Jesus, my sin rather, and punishes him for that. And when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus' righteousness goes onto my account. We've all had money put into our accounts from work. Maybe you have a direct deposit. It's like that. The punishment for your sin was deposited onto his account. And the righteousness from his account was deposited into yours. That's amazing. That's breathtaking. And how do we get that? Faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, turning away from them, putting your faith and trust in what he did, only in what he did. So yes, our understanding of scripture needs to be informed and balanced out with what the rest of the scriptures say. That said, it should affect our understanding of the coming of Christ, yes, but it should also, it should also affect our service of Christ. Not just affect our understanding of the coming of Christ, but affect our service to Christ. It should make us want to serve him more. I want us to be, and I'm going to end with this, listen, I want us to be well-informed and theologically sound. I want that. But I want that to shine most clearly, not by winning theological arguments, but instead by winning souls to Christ as we live like Christ while we're waiting for Christ. I'm going to say that again. I want us to instead not just win theological arguments, but instead win souls to Christ as we live like Christ while waiting for Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you even for the harder portions of Scripture. I know I'm not alone because the Apostle Peter even mentioned certain things that were hard to understand. And so, Father, we pray thanking you for these sections because they force us to study a bit harder than we would otherwise. And they also make us glad when we receive these things and make us less willing to give them up because we didn't get them without a fight. And so, Lord, I pray that you would please help us to stand strong on the truths of Scripture, knowing that they have come to us at a great price. As we learned last week from brothers and sisters of old who shed their blood so that we might have the texts of English Bible in, in, in our hands today, but also, Lord, a Savior who shed his blood that our souls could be saved. 
We pray this thanking you in his name. Amen.